Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's the wonky show. There's plenty of speculation around, around fees and funding. We'll get across that. A new report out on credit, polling from the Student Futures Commission, and UCAS gets into apprenticeships. It's all coming up. Um, And I would argue that no university should be inviting a Holocaust denier because it is such an extreme and dangerous viewpoint. And because universities do have duties under the Prevent Duty, do have duties under the Equality Act. And as I said in my speech, this bill does not supersede them at all. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and here to mow the lawn in the garden of HE policy, as usual, a couple of fantastic guests. Uh, in Neston, Helen O'Sullivan is Provost and Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of Chester. Helen, your highlight of the week, please. Uh, well, I was tempted to say that it was my walk this morning, which was the first one that I could actually do wearing just a T-shirt as my outer layer. I was wearing hat and gloves as recently as a couple of weeks ago. But professionally, it's been that I've f- finished some really significant writing activities in the last week. So a chapter that I've been writing for a book, which was really good. My first annual report as chair of the board of trustees for the Association of Learning Technology, which was really exciting thing to be part of. And also finishing a draft of the Education Action Plan for Chester, which is essentially how we're going to move from this remote emergency learning that we've all found ourselves into into the post-COVID new reality. Well, we'll come to some of that later. Excellent <laughs> stuff. And in Camberwell, Johnny Rich is Chief Executive at the Engineering Professors Council. Johnny, your highlight of the week, please. Well, today is uh, my daughter's 15th birthday. And professionally, the Engineering Professors Council earlier in the week published Engineering Opportunity, which is our study of the contribution that studying engineering makes to social mobility. And the good news is it does act as a social leveller, giving a helping hand to those from disadvantaged backgrounds. Fantastic stuff. So, yes, we start this week with fees and funding. Gavin Williamson has been talking about his ambitions for skills and FE, and papers have been full of speculation about how all of that will be paid for. Johnny, what's going on here? If anyone was still expecting a response to the Augur Review as a single decree from Westminster, it's becoming increasingly clear that's not what we're getting. Um, Edward Peck, um, Nottingham Trent VC, was writing as much on the uh, on the site the other day. Uh, basically, um, most of most of the response is already out there, either in the form of the Skills Bill or Queen's Speech, other stuff. Um, there are some things left. There's the idea of minimum entry requirements, the counter-evidential threat to foundation years. But most importantly, there's the stuff about how it's all going to be paid for, both in FE and in HE. Um, and supposedly we're due to get uh, some of that in amendments to the government's skills bill, but also... Um, when they finish their homework. Um, But um, the bit relating to HE, we're promised as part of the comprehensive spending review in the autumn. Uh, The thing is, 
the government quite rightly wants more and better funded FE uh, and they want to give everyone a lifelong learning entitlement. Um, maybe they want to reintroduce maintenance, grant, maintenance grants for those most in need. Again, great. And contrary to what some people believe, they don't actually want to destroy higher education in the process. And meanwhile, the ONS has stopped and told them to stop cooking the books on student loans. So something's got to give. Uh, somewhere they need to either spread their financial butter more thinly um, or, or find a bigger dairy. And there aren't that many options without a radical overhaul of the entire post-18 funding structure, which I would like to see. Um, but Orga suggested a fee cut to 7500 And... What's happening now is that the kite is most definitely being flown for that one, um, which is why um, various media are suddenly in possession of leaks about it. Um, there are also other possibilities, um, not necessarily mutually exclusive, such as lowering the threshold to start payments, um, higher interest on loans. Um, Chris Skidmore was very against that idea the other day, or a longer repayment term. Um, but none of them is a very attractive option. But the problem is the government knows that if it cuts fees to, say, £7,500, you can't run a high-quality engineering course for that. An engineering course costs somewhere in the, round of, in the region of £11,500 to run. So the courses that are going to get cut are those expensive ones. Those are exactly the ones that the government wants to hang on to. Um, meanwhile, the arts and humanities courses that most politicians themselves studied, um, but they don't want other people to have the available option to study, um, those are the ones that are more likely to survive. Uh, so the solution could be to top up the STEM funding. Um, but unless they're prepared to top it all the way up, it's still not going to work because those courses are still going to be loss-making and it'll be the other lower-cost courses which will be breaking even, um, but they won't be able to cross-subsidise. Um, so the very outcome that the government wants to achieve would be the very one that they undermine. Helen, obviously to get the system under control from a kind of treasury point of view, there's basically three things you can do, right? You can either lower the unit of resource somehow or you can have fewer students going to university, or you can have graduates paying back more. What, what, I mean, do you think we're in for all three? Do you think, we're, where do you think in the end we'll kind of land in that kind of Bermuda Triangle of Doom? Um, well, who knows? And I think that, you know, those different options will probably get a bit of all three. I mean, you know, there's been, uh, the kite flying is very much out in force, and we've got lots of quotations from various anonymous vice chancellors, you know, you know, sort of uh, predicting doom and, and Armageddon. But I think I think the, it's really interesting to hear Johnny's uh, interpretation of outcomes because I, I'm sensing um, that the courses that are more in the crosshairs are are the arts and humanities. And it's interesting that his uh, view, which I think has you know, which is very logical, means that the the opposite thing might happen. So, you know, one of these kite flying articles in the Times this week talks about all these different um, measures. And there's a quotation at the end of the article, which is stated as an uncontested fact. And it's worth just, you know, reflecting on that. It says, Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, is keen to move students away from arts and humanities degrees and those with poor graduate outcomes. So, just pause on that for a second. Not arts and humanities degrees that have poor outcomes, but arts and humanities degrees and those with poor graduate outcomes. So, that includes classics at Oxford, theology at Durham, 
uh, art history of St Andrews. Or does it? (laughs) It's quite an incredible statement taken at face value. But we know that he's also been on the record recently saying things, you know, like the number of uh, students taking up science and engineering demonstrates that many are already starting to pivot away from these dead-end courses. Um, so, so I think we know the direction of travel that the government is trying to achieve. But I think it is interesting, and in that you know, this goes back to my point about where we land in the policy of unintended consequences. And I think Johnny's point about those unintended consequences that you know that is a real danger that we end up with um, some bigger universities who have been, you know, essentially fishing in in the tariff pool of other universities, shall we say, for things like English history, you know, theology and, and other humanities and arts, they may stop doing that because they because they won't be able to make the cross-subsidy. So, who knows where all this will land? Um, but I think we do know the clear direction of travel that the government wants to take us to. Johnny, what, what do you think is more likely, sort of variable fees that sort of students can see or variable units of resource that students can't see. Do you see what I mean? You know, will will the will we end up with the government trying to incentivize certain courses and disincentivize the provision of other courses, if you like, behind the scenes through the top-ups that are given to universities, or if you like, front of house in the sticker price for degrees in the sort of way that we've kind of seen in Australia? I honestly don't know what they're going to decide to do, and it's a fool's game to try and uh, second guess. Um, that I know what they should do, um, or I think I do. Uh, I think that they should stop trying to play one thing off against each other. Um, the problem with funding of higher education in this country is um, different interest groups are set against each other rather than being aligned with each, with each other. We all have common interests. We all want to see a high-quality education delivered to as many students as possible so that they can get excellent jobs that the economy needs. You know, it's simply stated like that. But the incentives are designed to uh, keep taxpayers' investment as low as possible whilst keeping um, students' investment as low as possible whilst keeping uh, higher education quality as high as possible and and employers finding the right... Everything's pulling in different directions. And I mean, I think that you can align these interests by getting, by making the money follow the interests that you want and balancing student demand with employer demand. And, you know, I'm banging on about something that I came up with a couple of years ago here, which is, which is the idea of a graduate levy where um, employers pay basically the student loan back instead. Um, and uh, this way, employers get a get skin in the game, but students get to choose what they study. Helen, obviously, one of the options on you know the kind of third side of the triangle, the kind of student contribution scheme thing, you know, th- there's a, you know one of the things that Edward Peck says in his blog on the site this week is, you know, the 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 the, 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 the auger panels proposals, and of course he was on the auger panel. The auger panels proposals. Um, would take the repayment thresholds back down to, you know, 21, 22, uh, K. And of course, the thing Peck doesn't say is that the other thing in the, in the Olga report is that the repayment period 
you know, the write-off period would shift from 30 years to 40 years, and that would increase the efficiency of the scheme. But if they implement that for current students who've just had the 18 months that they've had, that would be a scandal, wouldn't it? Well, I, I think it. I think it, the impact on this current generation of students needs to be really clearly taken into account, I and mean, we need to do as much as we can to help them into the job market. The, the repayment length of time I suspect is would be less of an impact than the threshold lowering because that you know that's material isn't it you see that going out of your pay packet I think just just going back to to Johnny's point I I really do think that we need to link up the the skills required for the for the future economy and um with our courses that that we offer and and I don't think the government sort of messing around with the levers of the market, if you see what I mean, is the best way of doing that. And I think we've got a real, um, it's it's up to us as universities to work with employers, but it's up to employers as well to work with us. And I often find it quite difficult to get employers really involved in saying what they really want and providing that sort of those uh, uh, employer engagement opportunities and what have you. So, so for example, you know, if you're studying a, a history or an English or a theology degree, you're developing the sorts of skills that that organisations like the World Economic Forum tell us are going to be critical for the jobs of the future for the next 10, 15 years. So, how do we get that message across to prospective students and also to employers that these are the skills? Um, I mean, obviously, engineering, it's it's a bit more of an obvious line, but about 80% of all graduate level jobs don't require a disciplinary background. They require those higher level skills. And so, for, for me, one of the key things is how we link the skills that employers are going to need or think they need with what these big organisations like the World Economic Forum are telling us and then back to the courses that we deliver and getting that integration right will solve some of these issues without having to tinker around uh, with with the sort of levers of the market because it's not a, it's not a genuine market and tinkering with the levers doesn't always have the the outcomes that you want. The government is making exactly the opposite pro- mistake that they made in 2010 with the um, white paper students at the heart of the system. The problem in, with students at the heart of the system was it gave all the power to decide what students should study to the students. And that wasn't good for labour market needs. Um, and the money followed the students. Now what they want to do is try and make the money follow exactly what the employers need in the short term. And I stress in the short term and Actually, none of us is very good at predicting labour markets 5, 10, 15 years out, let alone 30 or 40 years out. But now they want to uh, make it so that the only courses that get funded are those with obvious um, vocational outcomes. Where are the students going to come from? Engineering would love to recruit more students, but pretty much everyone who wants to do engineering at university can probably find a place. There are enough places for all the people who want to study engineering, but we have a massive engineering shortage because people aren't coming through schools with the appropriate qualifications and and with the desire to do engineering. Now, Universities Minister Michelle Donnellan has been speaking to Guild HE's annual conference uh, and as well as comments on fees and funding, she had a conversation about free speech. Let's have a quick listen. Should universities know platform the Holocaust denier and potentially have to pay them compensation or allow them a platform? Yeah, so what, what I want to start with by saying is you know, anti-Semitism is absolutely abhorrent and has no place, as I said in my speech, in any part of our society and in any university. 
And in fact, this government has done more to address that issue than any government before. We now have over 100 universities signed up to the IHRA definition. Um, we're working very closely with the likes of the Union of Jewish Students and, and providing them funding as well to tackle this issue. And once again, I'll use this opportunity to say, you know, we really do want every vice chancellor addressing this issue because there is no place for anti-Semitism. And in terms of a very specific uh, question on anti-Holocaust denial, you know, uh, on Holocaust denial, Holocaust denial, let's be honest, is an extremist view that is a very dangerous view. It's based on no fact. It is a, a work of fiction that um, can indeed lead to harassment and um, the uh, uh, and the student body on campus. So what we're saying on this very matter is, in fact, that let's be realistic in terms of the current duties that universities face. They face the Prevent Duty, the Equality Act. There are several measures in there at the moment to protect universities. So absolutely, no, universe, uh, universities will not be placed in a position where they are asked to protect a Holocaust denier. And the Free Speech Bill is not a right to a platform. It does not mean that a university has to invite such a speaker at all. Um, and I would argue that no university should be inviting a Holocaust denier because it is such an extreme and dangerous viewpoint. And because universities do have duties under the Prevent Duty, do have duties under the Equality Act. And as I said in my speech, you know, this bill does not supersede them at all. This is about lawful free speech and also about ensuring that universities take reasonable practical measures, it says that in the bill, to balance with existing duties. And there's more on the site about the balance between freedom of speech and freedom from harm and discrimination. Uh, take a look at the show notes. Now, meanwhile this week, the Quality Assurance Agency uh, has released the first update to the Higher Education Credit Framework for England uh, since 2008. Helen, convince us that this is interesting. Oh, it is interesting. <laughs> no, seriously, I am a bit of a quality um, nerd, actually. And um, and I actually, I could, I what the the original um, HE, you know, uh, qu uh, credit framework was one of my was one of my favourite documents. But anyway, um, so it's 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 new, but it's not that new. So the guidance is designed, as stated by them, to support providers, um, and obviously it's in England, Northern Ireland, and Wales in developing HE courses consistently. So allowing learners to understand the equivalence of modes of study and to aid transferability, you know, between providers, but. The re I think the really interesting thing is that it comes alongside the skills and the post-16 education bill as, as that makes its way through Parliament. And so the policy trend really across all of the nations is a focus on flexibility and articulation. And this document will form the basis of how we understand that and how we understand how these smaller chunks of learning can be offered to students that can make sense both in their own right and as part of a, a larger qualification funded by government-backed loans, uh, although we've yet to see the detail of that. So, in terms of levels and the amount of credit for the main qualifications. There's very little change. But I think the real impact of this is likely to be in the change of emphasis and the explicit reference to micro-credentials. So, micro-credentials are given an, a, a status, an official status, and there's a lot of discussion around CPD, executive ed, and, and other short courses. But, I mean, of course, this concept is not actually new. So, at Postgraduate level, for example, many universities will be familiar with the concept of a credit framework where students can take an individual module, a standalone CPD, and then perhaps build it up into a PG cert or a diploma or even go to a full master's. Um, and a lot of this was online even before the pandemic. And, and the concept of credit transfer has been with us for many years. 
some students have benefited from credit transfer individually. The large scale use has probably always been more theoretical than, than in practice. So as this dovetails with the skills and post 16 education bill and this lifelong loan entitlement, it'd be really interesting to see how students are able to get funding for studying individual modules and micro credentials, although they, they may well be the same thing. So the document itself is relatively benign, but I think it's what it is, what it enables that will be the challenge to the sector. Uh, and perhaps the disruption that was being forecast a few years ago through unbundling is finally upon us. And I, you know, personally that I think there's a lot to be welcomed in this. If, if we do go down this route, I think there's some really interesting things that we'll need to think about. So, the logical conclusion about all of this will have impact on how we're measured and evaluated as a sector. So, for example, the NSS, the TEF and the Access and Participation Plan are all predicated on kind of the usual mode of study being a three-year full-time and, yeah, a whole course. So, definitions of progression, completion, as well as what is a whole course will have to be looked at in parallel. And, you know, I've got lots of examples of students who are better, who have been best served by, by changing their mode of study from, say, full-time to part-time, going back home, you know, studying maybe a couple of modules part-time online, you know, while they deal with health issues, family crises, you know, working, whatever it is. Um, but, by the access and participation plan standards, that is not a successful student. That's, you know, um, we've failed that student, but of course we haven't because it was in their best interest. So all of these definitions and all of this, there's a massive cultural mindset change, I think, across the sector if we are going to follow the logical, uh, logical conclusion of all of this. Johnny, is this a case of, you know, the, uh, the, the, the coarse goose and the module golden egg? Or is it more of a sort of, you know, the modules are incomprehensible jigsaw pieces and it's only really the whole jigsaw that matters? I think anybody who underestimates the importance of what's on the table here is failing to comprehend the changes that the government wants to see in higher education. The government vision of the direction for higher education is very much more pick and mix, hop on, hop off, lifelong learning um, and transferability. And so this stuff is is really important, but it does fundamentally miss a couple of um, the key problems that have beset the whole idea of credit transfer for years. I remember when I was a student, and that's going back way longer than I care to remember. People were talking about credit transfer even then. And there are two fundamental problems with it. Uh, well, more than two, but there are two in particular I want to mention. One is university autonomy. And this is where autonomy really counts. It's not just for its own sake. It is important that universities should be able to work out what they teach, how they teach it, so that we have a diversity of different options, so that we have lots of different universities doing lots of different things. Because as Helen says, different students will respond to different circumstances. And sometimes they'll respond to one and then later to another. And we need that variety. And what this means, and I, I've talked to some engineering um, academics about this, and they're really interesting because they say, look, some of them say, look, we do theory first and then practice later. And others say, no, we want the theory to emerge out of the practice. So we do all our practical stuff early on. And then we look at the, when they discover the problems, we, we look at the theory and why it all went wrong. And 
so if you can pick and mix a bit more and you can take a module here that's a practical module and then a, another practical module and another practical module, you can miss out all of the theory um, or vice versa. You can only end up doing the theory and never applying any of it. And, you know, that's an example in engineering. But the same would be true in the courses that I studied, philosophy and English. Um, and there you could miss out whole critical parts of what you need by picking and mixing too much. So this is going to be very difficult in designing curriculums around um, around these modules that then have got to add up to being to to giving students an appropriate level of qualification. The other, sorry, the other. I said there were two, and the other one is that. Frankly, we know that some universities, and we know which ones I'm talking about, are never going to be happy to accept the equivalence of quality of what goes on in other universities. And um, this may be because they genuinely believe that what they do is better unless, or special. Unless they're transferring students out in their student protection plan, <laughs> at which point, you know, anything goes. <laughs> well, I, the universities I'm talking about are not necessarily very likely to be using their protection plan. <laughs> but, but what, and it, it almost doesn't matter whether or not they really are doing something special or better what matters is that they cannot be seen to be equivalent because if they are it undermines their brand helen the other thing i was talking to someone about the other day so you know i think you know people can kind of conceive of and understand that most undergraduate courses on taught programs and actually most pgt courses are kind of you know modularized these days and you know you could just take a module rather than a whole course but of course the moment you enroll at a provider you become entitled to draw down a bunch of collective resources too like you know welfare services and the use of space and to hang out in the library and to you know claim student hardship funding and so on there's been not a lot of thinking about that stuff yet has there not that i've seen in the policy um sort of sphere but I, again i don't think that is new um, and one of my previous institutions i was responsible for the wholly online programs and we had thousands of students all around the world and we went through all of those discussions you know what what is a student of the university and what are they entitled to can they join the student union for example are they you know can they vote in an election so so i think I think those discussions are being had at individual universities and there are, you know, there are some online versions of some of these resources and, and the pandemic has accelerated the provision of some of this to our students so that, you know, students who are perhaps on site, um, they may be taking a, a small microcredit as part of a, uh, their workplace development and they might not be geographically you know, proximal to the university, they can still draw down some of those, especially around resources, although there are issues around, you know, online resources and online journals and books and what have you. So I think I think we are thinking about those sorts of things. I think I think it's part of a broader, a much broader issue again, and I think Johnny's right about not underestimating the relevance of all of this. I mean, you know, I um I I think I was one of the few people who really thought the avalanche is coming was a really good document. <laughs> and actually, you know, now you can see the avalanche has been and gone and, and here we are. But the, but what that document alerted me to and opened my eyes to is the power of the kind of the deep, um, you know, the unbundling of education. And what we're going to end up with are some micro credentials uh, offered by 
places like Amazon, Google, Microsoft, we're already seeing this, LinkedIn Learning, all of these things. And unless we um, are up to the challenge and meeting that challenge, we'll kind of, we'll lose some of that ground to, to be able to make these decisions and provide this sort of learning. So, we really, it really is a challenge to the model and we really do need to be up to, up to that challenge. Now, every week on the show, we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's Academic Registrar, Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of HE. The way we organise our curriculum, the way that it's structured into a bachelor's degree and a master's degree and a doctoral degree, is a kind of inheritance of the medieval curriculum structure, which in turn is an inheritor of the kind of late antiquity notion of of what made a good education for um, a a citizen. The idea was that you would separate the, the curriculum that you would teach to people um, so that they had a general education and then you would go on and develop it. And the way the medieval university worked is that once you attained the master's rank uh, at the university, you could teach anywhere in Christendom. You could take your degree and teach absolutely anywhere. And so the, the ability to take your master's degree was, was seen as the most important thing. And the curriculum was split so that the first three or so years um, uh, you did a, a foundational uh, course and then in your last three years at university, you would spend your time much more in, in debate and discussion uh, and you would advance your, your study and be therefore in a position to become a teacher. You'd be in a position to do that. And so the first chunk of the time, you've got a bachelor's degree. You're admitted to a bachelor's degree and the second part, you were admitted to a master's degree. All in arts, because that was all the thing was. It was all general. There was no specialisation. You took the course. And this pattern gets um, to be the, the stabilising um, organisational factor of both English and Scottish universities. You take the, the course and, the, and then you leave it. But the second part of the course starts to become much less interesting when Oxford and Cambridge become more of a place for gentlemen to go. They don't really want to learn how to be able to teach and therefore the, the master's bit um, slowly wanes and therefore uh, the ability to come and take the exercises that you need to do slowly falls out of favour. Um, but they allow the, f- the fact that if you're in good standing, you can still get the degree of master. Uh, and so slowly over time, the, the requirements fall away uh, and you end up in the situation that you do the first part of your study, you get your bachelor's degree. And then as long as you don't muck up, and you're in good standing, you can top that up with your master's degree at the end. So we have the situation which confuses some people, especially people writing Wikipedia entries for politicians, uh, that people uh, think that they've studied an MA, but actually, of course, they haven't. They've just done what we, the rest of us have done, a, a bachelor's degree. And then a certain number of terms afterwards, depending on the arcane rules of the different universities, you can upgrade that to a master's. Uh, so you end up with this strange, slightly strange situation um, uh, that sits in place. Uh, at the start of the 19th century, when the, you know, the universities think it's probably a good idea to introduce rigorous examinations, there is an attempt to bring in proper uh, structures for people to get their MAs. But because people have got into the habit of just turning up uh, and graduating, it, it doesn't it doesn't stick. And therefore, all the effort is put in terms of uh, organising the honours level um, and not worrying too much about the fact that people could come back and take their MA. And it becomes you know, atrophied into a rank. But Durham and London, when they set up their universities, they decide they will have exams for the master's degree, and therefore they become an extra exercise that you can come and do at the end. You go away with your first degree, but if you want to come back and do more study, it is proper study. You actually have to do something to get your master's degree. 
Uh, a little later, Harvard drops. Harvard had gone into the same kind of wheeze. It had inherited this. It decides that that's that's no good as well. So it also institutes the idea that you actually have to do learning and take exams to get your MA. Uh, you can't just apply for it. So we've continued with this kind of strange setup. It survived uh, the. Uh, qualifications framework oxford and cambridge um, except that it's not a degree it's a, it's a rank inside the university uh, and generally everyone is is happy with this but just as an example of how sometimes uh, we need to look to our our lawmakers uh, for uh, a, a thorough discussion on these things uh, in 2011 chris leslie um, uh, mp for uh, a, part, a part of nottingham um, brought a private member's bill um, called Master's Degrees Minimum Standards Bill. Um, uh, and the idea, obviously, being that he's going to kill off the MAs at Oxford and Cambridge. So it's one of those private members' days, so there's uh, uh, the obligatory backbench Tory MPs trying to talk everything out. So the, um, David Nuttall uh, is on filibustering duty that day. They've already talked out something about um, equality, so they have another go at talking this one out. Uh, but Chris... Um, sets off to say a time has come to end this anachronism and a growing body of opinion believes it's time to draw a veil over these arrangements. Um, if we set aside the cheeky sense of privilege, even the most battle-hardened defenders of elitism have to admit that the total and utter lack of merit behind this apparently great award is unfair. Surely it is now in the best interest of modern and open Oxford and Cambridge universities for them voluntarily to relinquish this privilege and prove they are beacons of genuine learning and earned distinction. And it's David Willits who gets the reply, the holder of uh, an Oxford MA, of course, um, and uh, declares that interest, of course. Um, I did uh, shell out eventually to buy my MA, he says in, on the record, uh, in order to vote in the elections for the Chancellor of the University of Oxford and for the Professor of Poetry. As an MA, you have a, a status that allows you to vote in uh, some of those things. Uh, for us to act, we would not only have to be persuaded of the problem of confusion, he says, but would have to take a significant step towards intervening in the internal arrangements of the universities in question. That's where the position of the shadow minister rather surprises me, because my view, David Willits, is that intervening in such a way in the autonomous decisions of the universities of Oxford and Cambridge would go contrary to what I thought was the shared view of both front benches, the view that the autonomy of our universities was one of their reasons for success. Um, and he concludes by saying... Um, that Leslie has enabled me to set out my beliefs in a Tory in protecting those institutions and traditions where they do not do anyone any damage. So there we have the philosophy of the uh, Minister of State for Universities and Science. And obviously Oxford and Cambridge continue happily um, awarding MAs to people. Um, and it's a tradition. And as I said, apart from some people confused on Wikipedia, uh, it does anyone, no one, any harm. Now, uh, students want universities to prioritise a return to in-person teaching and they're missing each other's faces. Johnny, tell us more. Yeah, so in case you hadn't noticed, uh, we've had a little bit of a pan pandemic recently um, and it's been especially tough on students who've been racking up the usual debts but not getting the usual student experience. So... As I understand it, two irrepressible people, um, one of them Mark Leach of this parish and the other Richard Brabner of the UPP Foundation, came up with the idea of a commission to see how we can get back on track on, on three fronts, uh, teaching and learning, student experience and employability. And they called the commission the Student Futures Commission. And if you're going to do something that ambitious, you better make sure you've got the right person to lead it. And um, if you're looking for the right person in almost any circumstances, Mary Kernock Cook is 
is that person. And um, so they managed to persuade her to take it on. And so yesterday, the commission had its uh, formal launch, or as Mary called it, a mobilisation. I quite liked the idea of it being a mobilisation because she wants to crowdsource insights and solutions. Um, now, one of the things I thought was particularly interesting was the survey results that they showed um, that were intended to focus the mind on some of the questions. And one of them, for instance, was that 59% of students want to see a return to face-to-face -face teaching as university's top priority. And what interested me about that statistic was not the 59% that do, but the fact that it suggests that 41% don't. Um, and also, 48% didn't feel they'd missed out on any aspect of teaching. And I think student surveys are there to tell us what students think. But often what they, what they mainly do is remind us that students don't think as one group. <laughs> they think they are, you know, you get 10 students together and you probably have 12 opinions. Um, they, some, some students quite like the online delivery um, and would like to stick with it or at least in part and you know we're we're discovering that some of the stuff we've been forced to do over the past year and a half is actually quite valuable and effective and certainly as part of a of a mixed environment and the answer to the students futures commission is that there is going to be no one answer we need the he sector to retain and increase its diversity to cater for different students wanting different things um what does worry me, though, from the from the survey, is that more than half of all students said they hadn't engaged in any extracurricular activities, or as I prefer to call them, co-curricular activities, because, frankly, they're a really important accompaniment to academic work when it comes to social interaction, well-being, mental health, uh, and, really importantly, developing the kind of rounded skills that make up the graduateness that many employers are actually looking for. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges for the Commission will be to ensure that students get back that part of what they've lost. Um, we've, we've no idea what the future of work will look like for graduates after, after the pandemic, after Brexit, in the midst of a climate crisis, etc. And so when we talk about employability for graduates, we mustn't confuse that with employment. Uh, employability and employment are different. Um, and what's important moving forward is that we need to make sure that students leave university with the rounded, resilient, flexible skills that will see them through whatever job market they happen to find themselves in. Helen, what jumped out at you? Oh, I, I really enjoyed the launch. And um, I, I think... What jumped out at me was how unsurprising the results of the survey were because, of course, students want to get back onto campus and they want to, us to prioritise in-person teaching because very few of our students in the sort of the main three-year undergraduate kind of programmes are signing up for a you know, would have signed up for a fully online degree. So we shouldn't be surprised that they want us to to prioritize that. I think I think for me what it really emphasizes is that the move towards, you know, whatever you call it, blended or, you know, hybrid, whatever we want to call it, that that move that had started long before the pandemic has just been accelerated by what's happened. And, you know, we had a large proportion of students to sixty percent nearly sixty percent who who really want us to carry on with the recorded lectures. And I think 
what they mean by that is the recorded content, you know, so that they can, um, you know, so they can concentrate the in-person activities on those that they find more valuable. And this is, you know, this is the the basis of the flipped classroom approach. And you've got universities like the University of Northampton who've done this whole scale, you know, long before the pandemic. So I think what we're seeing is an acceleration of that uh, model of pedagogy, which has been shown, you know, demonstrated that active blended learning uh, is a very effective way for students to develop. And and the social elements, you know, we're all social beings. And I think, you know, I've talked to students and they don't, they haven't missed the lectures, but they've missed the activity around the lectures, you know, the hanging around before, the going in, you know, having a coffee afterwards. So, that's social interaction. So, I think it's behoven on us as universities. That's a learning environment. I mean, that, you know, that kind of interaction is what makes you part of a learning community. And we learn more from each other than we do from, from staring at a screen. Uh, But, but it's, but but it's funny you raise that, Johnny, right? So, you know, you pulled that stat out earlier about, you know, a, a large proportion of students in the survey said, you know, they didn't feel they'd missed out on any teaching. Of course, what they also said was that they felt they'd missed out on a range of other things that are directly connected to learning. And one of, you know, certainly one of my frustrations has been every time you hear Michelle Donnellan talk, she will talk about the teaching and the social side as if they're the only two things that occur. <laughs> and I'm not even talking clubs and societies here. I'm talking, you know, going for a coffee with the other people on your course. I'm talking asking your lecturers a question. <laughs> you know, I'm talking hanging out in the library and finding something. You know, all of that stuff that directly contributes to learning that isn't open quotes, teaching, close quotes, can sometimes get lost, can't it? Absolutely. And I think I think what we need to do as universities is to think about how that digital space and the physical space can be combined to really maximise those opportunities for students. So that's that, again, is a big change. It's a big acceleration of the way things were going. And uh, plenty more detail on the commission and how you can get involved. Uh, and hopefully every single person that's listening to this podcast will get involved uh, uh, are available both on the site and on the UPP Foundation site. Wonkfest, our festival of higher education, returns in June. And because of the year we've all just had, we're using it as an opportunity to look ahead. What worked, what didn't, and how can we come back stronger as universities, professionals, and as a sector? And crucially, how can higher education drive the global recovery? It's all about how we build back higher. We'll hear from people who've been at the heart of the government response, like National Statistician Ian Diamond, Vice-Chancellors, Students' Union Officers, and literally, and I mean literally, everything and everyone in between it's online only this year well because you know why but we're working hard to keep the best of the wonkfest you know bustling with insights you can take back to your institutions at the end and team wonky will be on hand every step of the way to help guide you through it it's all happening on 9th and 10th of june the program is out now and you can find out more and book your tickets at wonkfest.co.uk and as usual group discounts and plus and partner rates apply we look forward to seeing you in june to help us build back higher together Now, finally, more than half of students looking to apply to higher education in 2022 are interested in apprenticeships, but they're finding it difficult to find out more. Helen, what's uh, what's going on here? So this is a report um, researched by UCAS. And the conclusion is that relevant information remains very difficult to 
to obtain. So despite the government's focus on vocational education we've talked about earlier, more than a quarter of students polled by UCAS didn't know how to find information about pursuing an apprenticeship. And a third of sixth formers and half of college students reported that they were not told about apprenticeships as an option when they were preparing for their post uh 18 life. Um, and asked about their perceptions of either route. Half the students said that they were interested in apprenticeships and university equally, but more than 90% thought that universities was the more expensive option. And about two thirds of students perceived that it was more the more prestigious option. So actually, the Times had a piece on, on this research and I broke one of my own golden rules for maintaining mental health, which is not to look below the line on any newspaper article. But I, <laughs> but, but I did. And there were nearly 300 comments all pretty much along the line of there are too many people going to university and they'd all be better off learning to be a plumber. So, you know, obviously, I don't happen to believe that there are too many people going to university. But- do, you, do you believe that there are, there's a shortage of plumbers? Um. Well, I'll, I need to have some work done on my shower, so I'll tell you in a week or two. But the usual argument, back to this sort of rhetoric, is that everyone thinks that their children should go to university and that others, other people's children should be doing an apprenticeship. But I think I am noticing a change in this. So I was talking to a, an eminent professor recently whose offspring has gone straight into a degree apprenticeship in financial services. And I've been advising my niece on on an apprenticeship route. Um, and they're, they're just a critical part of how we can address skill shortages. And despite the the interest from the middle classes, they are um, still a really powerful driver of social mobility. So, so I think universities are fully embracing the development um, of um, apprenticeships. But one of the challenges is, again, something I mentioned earlier is about working with employers. So, getting more, persuading more employers to fund workplace training and seeing it as a really attractive option rather than, you know, a burden of losing that member of, uh, you know, their, their workforce for a day a week or whatever it turns out to be. So, despite the apprenticeship levy, I think some employers just write that off as a tax, uh, and we could we we it would be great to see more employers really valuing that form of 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 study. Johnny, engineering is your uh, well. I mean, you have many you have you have many uh, specialities <laughs> and, and expertise uh, domains. But uh, engi- you know a lot about engineering. Are there too many students, you know, leaving home to find themselves and then dabbling in a bit of engineering on a course when they should be, you know, in a de- in an engineering uh, degree apprenticeship as well as engineering. I also run an outreach organization called Push, which goes into schools. And that actually gives me quite a lot of insight into uh, apprenticeships and what students know about or what school leavers know about them and what teachers know about them. And that's part of the problem is that teachers don't know much. You know, most teachers have done a degree and haven't done an apprenticeship and so don't have the familiarity. So they're not, it's not the first thing they think of when talking to students and even if they do talk about it, they don't necessarily understand it quite as well as they could or should. Also, the thing that most people forget about apprenticeships is that they're not courses, they're jobs. They are jobs where you do some learning, you get paid to do some learning, and but they are jobs. And we tried to UCAS is absolutely right that we do need to centralise the information sources about the availability of apprenticeships. But there are lots of really good reasons this hasn't happened yet. Um, and a key factor in this is that apprenticeships are starter jobs for most people. And the most important thing when you're looking for a starter job is usually that it needs to be close to home. So the, 
geographic mobility that we see for university degrees just doesn't exist for many apprenticeships. So people are looking locally when it comes to apprenticeships. Um, And that's why we haven't had a national jobs board for apprenticeships in quite the same way. Um, And there are other problems. As I said, teachers don't necessarily know enough about apprenticeships. Employers don't know enough about apprenticeships. As Helen says, some of them regard the apprenticeship levy as a as a tax, um, but smaller employees who don't pay the uh, employers who don't pay the um, levy, um, if they do want to take on an apprentice, they don't know how to advertise it because it's really expensive to do to advertise a vacancy, but it's not worth it to invest a lot in advertising um, an apprentice who isn't going to be very commercially valuable to you. So they can't spend time or money on advertising them. So where do they post for it? How do they link up with to find them? This is this is why the system is broken, and we need when a system is broken, you need a broker. You need you need to get somebody to join up. And this is what the Engineering Professors Council um, wrote a um, an excellent paper, as far as I'm concerned, on 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 degree apprenticeships called Experience Enhanced. And one of the recommendations that we made was that universities should be more engaged in recruiting apprentices and matching them with employers so that you can apply for a degree apprenticeship in exactly the same way as you would apply for a degree and then be matched up with an employer that way. Um, And, you know, I think that's a good recommendation and I think it would be great for UCAS and I, I entirely understand why... Uh, UCAS looks on the whole world of apprenticeships with a very covetous eye. So that's about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in HE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscription services. So thanks to Helen, Johnny, Mike Ratcliffe, everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen behind the scenes. And until next week, stay wonky. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.